Episode 95 The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Current State of the Search If we are successful at a detection, we know that it is possible for us to have a long future. And there are so many things that we're looking at in our culture today that indicate that, in fact, our future might be quite short if we don't get our act together and do a better job than what we've been doing in the past. Hello, and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbir Singh, amateur astronomer and writer based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the About page at www.astrotalkuk.org. The Earth is one ordinary planet of many orbiting one typical sun of many in an unremarkable galaxy, the Milky Way one of the countless numbers in an ever-expanding universe. Since the beginning of human civilization, people have looked up at the night sky and wondered, are we alone? Science and technology of the 20th century has made it for the first time possible to try to address that question. So, how are we doing? Telescopes on Earth and in space have revealed what we knew deep inside to be true. We now have evidence for Earth-like planets orbiting sun-like stars. Spacecraft from Earth have visited all the planets of the solar system and landed on several. Landscapes of alien surfaces that existed only in the minds of visionary science fiction writers have now been revealed from the surface of Mars, Venus, Titan, comets and asteroids. These exquisite technological achievements over the past six decades have returned terabytes of data. But no evidence of life beyond the Earth has been detected so far. The history of science has largely validated human imag imagination. What was one hinted at in myths and science fiction is now science fact. The Sun really is at the centre of a solar system. The universe is expanding and black holes are real. In 2016, the faint echoes of cataclysmic events in the distant cosmos were detected as gravitational waves here on Earth. The crucial evidence of extraterrestrial life, however, remains elusive. Despite the search none has been found. Why not? We have only just begun the search, says one SETI researcher. It's like pulling a glass of water from the Pacific Ocean, not finding any fish in the glass and claiming that the Pacific Ocean has no fish. Uh, Dr. Jill Tata, the uh, former director of the SETI Institute, um, thanks for, for your time. I'm sure you know uh, of Drake, uh, 
Frank Drake personally, but the rest of the world knows of the Drake equation. Um, it was established in 1961. And um, if you can summarize what it is and then tell us what the progress is in terms of what the solutions were about then and what they are now. Well, the Drake equation is something that I get a bit unhappy about having it called an equation. Because if you say equation to a student, they expect that they're going to be able to calculate something with it. And in fact, the Drake equation is much more just a beautiful way to organize our ignorance about the <laughs> possibility of communicating civilizations out there. But the, the Drake equation formally takes the uh, number of stars that are forming, the average number of Earth-like planets that are orbiting those stars, the fraction of those planets where um, life starts, the fraction of those life forms where um, intelligence arises, and the fraction of those intelligent species which actually create a technology that can be detected over interstellar distances. And lastly, the longevity, the lifetime of that, those transmissions. And you multiply all these factors together and, and um, you come up with some number. Now, the, the astronomical uh, pieces are beginning to be well understood. And as opposed to when Frank Drake wrote down those terms, uh, we now know that there are more planets than stars in the Milky Way galaxy, that all stars have at least one planet and probably 10 or 20% of them are Earth-like planets in reasonable distance from their star to perhaps support life. But once you get to the factors like what fraction of those worlds actually does life start, that's some folks in the, in the UK have written a paper saying that that's really the most unknown factor. And if you go through the literature at what people have guessed, you can find 120 orders of magnitude discrepancy in whether people think life is inevitable or very, very rare. And then, of course, when you get to the last term, the longevity, we have no idea what the average longevity of a distant technology might be. But for me, that's the reason to work on SETI. Because if we were to succeed, if we were to detect a signal, then we know that L must be very large, that we in fact can have a long future. Because you will, to, to detect a signal, the two technologies have to be close together, close in space, but also co-temporal, overlapping in time. And with the 10 billion year history of our galaxy, you're never going to get two technologies overlapping in time unless their longevity is quite large. And that's large on a cosmic scale, not just a human lifetime scale. And so, when you turn that around and say, and, and if we are successful at a detection, 
we know that it is possible for us to have a long future. And there are so many things that we're looking at in our culture today that indicate that, in fact, our future might be quite short if we don't get our act together and do a better job than what we've been doing in the past. And that is a, a very profound uh, age-old question. So specifically, in terms of the technological developments since the early 1960s, there are now instruments in space looking for planets. Um, there are some very uh, high-resolution um, telescopes, radio, and as well as optical telescopes to detect signals from very far away. So we're now a bit closer to understanding um, the number of planets um, that a star might have, where within the habitable zone those planets might lie. What do you see as the next technological step? Um, would it be, for example, the James Webb telescope that might help refine the data towards understanding the, the answers to that question? of the probability of finding uh, life within this galaxy at least. Okay, so um, exoplanets have been a big game changer in the past few decades, but there's been another one, and that's extremophiles. When I was a student, I was told that in order to support life, you had to be between the boiling and freezing points of water, you had to have um, pressures of about one bar like we have on Earth. You had to, um, couldn't be too acid, too basic. Uh, all of these constraints, because we had not yet found life in other situations, like in the boiling battery acid of a volcanic system, the bottom of the ocean around black smokers with huge pressures, high temperatures. Um, so extremophiles, have in fact told us that the conditions under which life can flourish are much broader than we might have thought. So learning about extremophiles, finding exoplanets means that there is a lot more potentially habitable real estate out there than we once had presumed. Now the question is to find out whether any of it is inhabited and certainly the James Webb Space Telescope will allow us to look for um, certain signals like um, industrial pollution in the atmospheric gases of a, a, an exoplanet for a few nearby stars. But in order to really go looking for life on a large scale, we're going to need bigger telescopes. There are two concepts within NASA and another, and another um, over in, in Europe at ESA for these very, very large space telescopes. One's called Louvoir, one's called HabEx. Um, and they are going to be not the, the current generation, but the generation after that, where you really may have the ability to go looking um, at the atmospheric signatures of distant exoplanets, looking for chemical disequilibrium, looking for the kind of thing that happens in our own atmosphere on Earth, where we have, at the same time, in the atmosphere, we have molecular oxygen and methane gas. Now, those are two very reactive gases, and when you put them together in the laboratory, they instantly turn into water and carbon dioxide. 
That's happening in the Earth's atmosphere all the time. But because there is a biological source function at the base of the atmosphere from our surface, the surface of our planet, we have um, photosynthesis pumping oxygen into the atmosphere to replenish what's being recombined up there. And we have bovine flatulence producing methane gas. So we are replenishing those two gases and keeping them out of chemical equilibrium. And we are hopeful that in time we will have big enough telescopes and clever enough instrumentation so that we can separate the light that's reflected off a planet and coming through its atmosphere and the much brighter light coming from the star that it orbits. So if you use the Earth as um, uh, an example, then the Earth, the, the light reflected, visible light reflected off our planet is 10 billion times fainter than the light coming from the sun. And on the sky, they're right next to one another. In the infrared, it's a little better. It's only a factor of 100 million that you have to contend with. So we have to build instruments that can separate the bright star and the faint planet and then can tease apart um, the spectra of the exoplanet reflected light looking for this chemical disequilibrium, what we call biosignatures. And it's, it's not the current generation of telescopes. It's mm. going to be the one after that that will be able to do this for very many uh, of the exoplanets. We can we can probably do a handful of the very closest with the telescopes that are coming on the air now. But really, bigger bigger is really going to be needed to do uh, a significant survey. Fascinating time to be around, as well as technosignatures, biosignatures, uh, almost within reach. Just going back to uh, extremophiles, that mm-hmm. was really also very interesting because I was really focused on detecting signals of uh, life from beyond the Earth. And what you, what I've just learned is that actually we can learn a lot about what's out there by looking closely at what's, what kind of life exists under a variety of different and extreme conditions right here on Earth. That's, uh, right. And, and those studies are influencing what we think about in terms of technosignatures. So we, we talk about radio signals and optical signals. But suppose when we actually get the capability of imaging these seven Earth-like planets in the TRAPPIST-1 system that was discovered a couple of years ago, they're all at different distances from their host star. That means they should all be at different temperatures. But what about when we ever have a big enough telescope to image those seven planets, suppose that we find out that they're all the same, right? That might be a pretty potent technic signatures. Somebody has done some geoengineering on a planetary scale to alter those uh, planets to have conditions that somebody thinks are more uh, desirable for habitation. I haven't come across that. So it's a bit like a Dyson sphere, a, a detection of some 
um, technological um, developments on a solar system scale if all mm-hmm. those planets are at the same temperature. That's fascinating. Um, so <clears throat> you've been involved within uh, the um, community, Seth community for a very long time. You must have had some near misses, some detections of signals that uh, you thought, oh, we've found one. Can you take us through an example of one or two of those instances? Well, we did have a really exciting, what turned out to be false positive back in 1997, when we were uh, observing in, um, in Green Bank at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Now, in, in addition to doing our signal processing in real time, we always observed with more than one telescope simultaneously. And they would be separated by hundreds or thousands of kilometers, kilometers sometimes. And we required that any signal that we found at one telescope would be also seen by the distant telescope and the signal's characteristics, the rate at which its frequency changed in time, would be appropriate to the differential Doppler shift from the rotation of the Earth for these two widely spaced telescopes. So again, another good discriminant against local interference. All right. So we were observing a star and about five o'clock in the morning, it was my shift and I found a obviously engineered signal in the data. It was, it was as if it were a picket fence. So you had many individual narrow signals separated by a constant frequency spacing. That's not something that nature does. So I got really excited and I, I, I had a clever idea, which is I'm going to look back through the last, oh, I forgot another, uh, an important piece of this story. On this occasion, because lightning had hit the telescope in um, Woodbury, Georgia, our second telescope, and had fried a disk drive. We were down to just having the one telescope at Greenbank, but we had the time there and I didn't want to give it up. And so we went into another mode of observing where we looked on the star and then we looked off the star and then looked on the star. And we should see the signal when it's on, but not when we're pointed off. And indeed, that was what we what happened. Every time we looked at the star, we saw the signal, we looked away, we didn't see the signal. And so here's my clever idea. I'm going to look back from through the last few weeks of data that we've been taking to see if I'd ever seen that signal with this finite frequency spacing from the multiple components, if I'd ever seen that before. And I was excited. I wrote a program, uh, not the world's best programmer, and I was pretty sloppy about how I outputted the, the, um, the answers. And so... In fact, that was the right thing to do. And if I had been neater, I probably would have seen that, yes, we had seen this same signal coming from different directions on the sky in the past. But the output was sloppy and I missed it. So I continued observing. I got my colleague up to come help. Um, We talked to the folks back in Mountain View. They had a, a, a mirror site. And they, they could follow the observing with us. 
And we went through this whole process, on source, off source, on source, off source, until the star set in the West. So we observed this star until it set in the West and then went off to have dinner and do a web search about what could be the source because we knew from the rate at which it was changing its drift rate. So the signal was changing frequency in time and that drift was itself changing over time. And it was changing as if the source were coming up overhead and not setting to the west. So we we were pretty sure that unfortunately this was not what we were interested in. So we we did a bunch of web searching and found that frequency spacing was associated with a spacecraft called SOHO, which was in orbit around the sun, not around the earth. If it had been in orbit around the earth, we would have uh, ruled this out much quicker. So, all right, darn, it isn't what we expected. It isn't what we were hoping for. But I did a very bad thing. I forgot to call the folks in Mountain View and tell them, no, sorry, guys, it's not what we thought. And so they're sitting in Mountain View in California until two in the morning, waiting for the star to rise again and continue. So um, I, I really had to mend some bridges when, when I got home, <laughs> forgetting to tell them and having them stay up late to, to continue to look at the signal. So that was our that was our most exciting false positive. There were a few others, but it, within minutes to an hour, we were in other cases able to show that some characteristic of the signal indicated that it really wasn't coming from the direction on the sky that we'd been tracking. Fascinating story. Now, at some stage, uh, a signal will be found. I think it's just personal view, um, but a, a protocol exists already right now. What is the protocol? Should a signal be received from some distant star of which is obviously intelligent in nature? Well, we started writing these protocols back in 1984 under the auspices of the International Astronautical Federation and the International Institute of Space Law. And they had a number. They said a number of things, which is you know just do your science the way you would do any other science and at the telescope, verify what you thought you'd found, try and get an independent confirmation, somebody who with equipment that you didn't build and software that you didn't write because we worried about deliberate hoaxes, right? Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, the people who signed these protocols said that they would not transmit a reply until there was some global consensus on who should speak for Earth and what they should say. Now, of course, we're a bunch of scientists. We had no idea how you'd ever get such a global consensus. We still don't today. But that was, you know, we, we thought we were taking the scientific high road, thinking that, first of all, oh, the, the other thing in the protocol was we're going to announce it. We're going to tell the world. We're not going to keep it secret. Because any signal that 
have been transmitted is obviously being transmitted to the planet Earth and not to California, right? And so that information is the property of, of humankind. And we would not reply without a global consensus. It's great. It's the scientific high road, if you wish. But if we ever detect a signal, someone discovers a signal, makes an announcement, anybody, I think, with uh, access to a telescope of any kind is going to grab that telescope and they're going to start broadcasting whatever the heck it is they want to. And I think there's no way to um, avoid that, given what human nature is like. And I remember talking about this with Freeman Dyson once, and Freeman just chuckled and he said, come on, Jill, that cacophony of uncoordinated multiple transmissions is probably the best characteristic of humans on the planet that you could have. You know, it, it indicates so, who we are. Yeah. And Freeman Dyson was a, a very unique character, uh, as so many people who do this kind of work are. Uh, you, you did mention uh, the two organizations, the International Institute for Space Law and the International Aeronautical Union. Uh, Federation. Both are international. Thank you. Um, and both are international in nature. So was this protocol or is this protocol to some level accepted internationally around the globe? Well, researchers who are working in this field have, most of them have voluntarily, you know, signed on to this protocol. Mm -hmm. And there has been a standing committee at the International Academy of Astronautics for many, many, many decades. It used to be back in the, the <clears throat> late 70s or 80s, even into the 90s, the only place, these congresses that were held once a year, someplace around the world, was the only place we could ever talk to our Soviet colleagues. And we actually undertook this protocol uh, with a provision that uh, the detection of a signal should be announced to the world as a way of trying to give them some backup uh, so that they might have a way of pushing back on any attempt to keep the discovery quiet. Uh, so we've, SETI has long been a part of that institution. It doesn't mean that it hasn't had to reform itself many times to keep relevant and to go along with whatever new um, structure that the International Academy of Astronautics has. But uh, it is international and we hold every year at the annual Congress, we usually have two sessions on SETI. One session on the technology uh, and the searches and what's happening and a second session on the societal aspects of the detection of such a signal. So that's been a long, that's been a home for us for a long time. So let me ask you about that uh, societal impact. Um, so if and when there is a, a, a detection uh, shown to be a valid uh, and repeatable detection of an intelligent 
the signal from this extraterrestrial intelligence. What does it mean to us? What should it mean to us in a societal context? Is it a big deal? I think it is a big deal. I think it changes everything and changes it all at once quickly. Um, I worry that it gives us potentially another have and have not situation because unless the signal is um, near the poles so that it's visible 24 hours a day, um, then you're going to have nation states and entities which have um, a potential for building a facility that can observe the sky, observe the source, for example, in the north, and where countries in the south might not be able to see the star. Um, so I, I worry that, that we might then set up another situation where some nation states are privileged and others are um, not so endowed with the ability to observe the signal. I think you need to have global coverage to be able to see the signal 24 hours a day because you don't want to miss any information. But I hope that we don't have this polarization based on geography set up by the signal. So I hope it's at uh, uh, low enough latitude so that yeah. everybody can see it. <laughs> I remember the uh, a quote from uh, a scientist uh, who was born not far from where I'm sitting here in uh, northern England, Fred Hoyle. And he said in 1948, I think, that um, once a photograph of the Earth is taken from outside, the idea uh, as powerful as any in history will be let loose. Um, and I'm guessing, um, and also actually another quote from uh, the Apollo 8 commander, uh, uh, Bill Anders, I think he said, Bill Anders, that, uh, yeah. along the words, when we went to the moon, we discovered Earth. Paraphrase. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's his Earthrise image from 1968 hmm. was um, just really powered the environmental movement. So it can have, despite the fact that a lot of people think um, that people like you and me who have <laughs> an interest in outer space and, and stars and planets beyond, well beyond the Earth, the work that um, um, we do there does have some real down-to-earth, everyday effects on the way we see each other and the way we relate to each other. Absolutely. And so when I give talks on SETI, um, I have a slide, which is a hand mirror, and I put all kinds of faces in that mirror. And I, I tell the audience that working on this project and talking to them about this project is like holding up a mirror to all of us on earth and saying, look, see in that mirror, when compared to something that evolved somewhere else independently, we're all the same. And we are, you know, we should trivialize the differences among humans that we are willing to shed blood over. Uh, we have all of these challenges that uh, don't respect national boundaries, 
and will require global solutions. And we have to figure out how to make it happen. And so I like to give people a homework assignment and suggest that when they, they leave the lecture, they go back to their devices and they alter the profiles, what they say about themselves. So that the first thing they say is that they are an earthling. And then I challenge them to start acting that way. And if I can just conclude finally on um, all of this is a product of science. And you mentioned about uh, the location of a star, should it should we detect a signal and its altitude uh, in the sky, and which we have and have not division that might arise as a result. We've seen that kind of division in humanity throughout civilization, throughout history, and around the world all the time. We, uh, in space, um, especially through the International Space Station, see this wonderful collaboration that uh, allows countries to work together. Um, even during the Cold War, when scientists got together, American and Soviet Union, they could collaborate. Do you see science as a, as a fundamental source, um, of a fundamental force in bringing people, um, earthlings, as you call them, lovely phrase, together? Oh, definitely. Um, there are projects that are really worthwhile doing, but they are far too expensive for any nation to afford. But nations can um, collaborate to build these large instruments that can be used by scientists from around the world. And scientists, uh, at least astronomers, those are the scientists that I'm most familiar with, are, are just used to having colleagues all over the world. And then they have the privilege of getting... In non-COVID times, they have the privilege of visiting and going to different countries and, and being um, in different cultures and absorbing different, uh, different ways of, of thinking and, and uh, behaving. So astronomers have always been, I think, global citizens. And I think certainly with respect to these large, expensive projects, it just makes us need to collaborate and cooperate. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have colleagues from all over the world and understand what their home lives are like and how they have been educated and how they view various problems, which are different than the way I see them. Dr. Jill Tata, thank you very much indeed for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.